morning, guys. Good to see you all. Good to see you. I got to tell you, we just keep saying how thankful we are to get to be here with you all this weekend and just grow together as men of God. And we're grateful for the way you guys have been locked in and just hungry, hungry to learn, hungry to grow, hungry to apply what we're talking about this weekend. So, so thanks, guys. It's been a real privilege to see you have a ton of fun, enjoy each other, enjoy our times together. Well, I want to spend time this morning thinking about how we grow. I don't want there to be any mystery about how we grow as men of God. And so I'm just going to talk about nine very practical ways that we grow, but try to ground them in the gospel as well. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we're grateful that we were able to uh, gather together like this this weekend. Lord, we don't take it for granted that we're privileged to sing together and learn together, laugh together and play together and enjoy your beautiful creation together. Lord, we're thankful that the Spirit's at work and he's the one who brings the change. He's the one who takes the truth of Jesus on a cross 2,000 years ago and weaves it into our souls in ways that changes us forever. So, Lord, we're grateful for the good news of Jesus that brings life and healing and hope and joy. And, Lord, we pray that we would be able to learn all you have for us in these few minutes together on this beautiful morning. And so, Lord, as we go to your word now, as we go together, we pray the Spirit would work. The same Spirit that inspired these scriptures, we pray he would be opening our minds and changing our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's going to be super practical this morning. I really don't want there to be any uncertainty about the ways God has given us for us to grow. When you become a Christian, like some of you guys did just the other morning, it changes everything. Sometimes the changes are imperceptible. You can barely see them. Sometimes it's dramatic, and we all have unique stories that God's writing for us as he holds our lives in his hands. But there are some fundamental, what I'll call, habits of grace that God's given us that if we attend to these things, if we pay attention to them and devote ourselves in discipline to the, these, these habits of grace, then we will grow. And that's what God has guaranteed for us. And so I want us to think about these habits of grace. First of all, oh, oh, that's my family. I did, did want to show you my amazing family. Aren't they beautiful? Yay. That's, yes, that's, <laughs> that's my wife of 34 years. We met in high school, and she is the most incredible gift from God to me. She is kind and patient and brilliant and funny and creative and incredibly compassionate, and, and she puts up with me on a daily basis since we were 16. I met her when I, after the third custody battle. I moved in with my father halfway through my junior year, pretty rough time in my life, and I went to the junior corridor of my new high school, and I did not fit at this new high school, and I I looked across from my locker, and Donna was there, and I immediately noticed. So I did some recon, and, <laughs> and, and I, I got some intelligence, and I found out she was seriously dating a guy named John, who was a good dude. 
and I, we, John and I became friends eventually. But I, they, they were officially class sweethearts in the yearbook. So I had to, I had to wait around. But finally, <laughs> the week of graduation from high school, she broke up with John. So out of respect for him, because we were friends, I waited two weeks. <laughs> and then moved in like El Nino. And uh, I never looked back, man. I never looked back. She, but she is just incredible. I'm so thankful for her. And we have my daughter Caroline, my daughter Paige, my son Sam and Isaac. They are amazing kids. They're miracles, every one of them. We adopted Caroline when she was eight, Paige when she was seven, Sam when he was six, and Isaac when he was eight. First three from Taiwan, last one from China. So we just love our kids dearly. And I love being a dad, and I love being a husband, as well as a pastor and a prof at Biola, and I'm, I'm just thankful for the life God's given me, very thankful, and I just want to steward it well. And so that's, that's my family. How are we doing, guys? I'm stalling. <laughs> I'm stalling. Oh, Lord. oh, and that's, that's just a few people from my church family. I wanted to show you a glimpse of my church family because when I come and do things like this, I come under their authority. I come with their blessing and with their prayer. And, and so Grace Evangelical Preacher of La Mirada, where I'm, I'm a member and I'm one of the pastors, I just love this little glimpse of our people. I have no idea what they're doing here, but they're having fun, and I love those people. I know, I know those folks dear, very well. And those are the people who will take care of my wife and kids if I die today. They're the ones who, who are family in a profound and deep sense. And so I'm so thankful for them. I don't think this is working, guys. I'm not sure. There we go. There's another one. That's just another glimpse. We're praying for this dear woman in the middle who is a missionary in Israel. She, she was raised in Israel. Her name is Ayelet, and she's an incredible woman. And we're commissioning her to go be a missionary in Israel. She's there now, and she ain't, she ain't leaving. But she, she's here, and they're in a tough time, but she's not leaving. She's staying, and so Ayelet's incredible. And we're sending her off to the mission field uh, in this picture. You know, let me just pause and pray for her. Lord, I'm grateful for Ayelet. I'm grateful for her heart for the Jewish people. I'm, I'm grateful that she's there being the the fragrance of Christ to, in a very needy time over there, Lord, it is chaos, and evil's on display, and a conflict that's gone on for thousands of years is in the daily news, uh, again, has been my whole life, and has been for a long time, and so, so Lord, I pray for peace in Jerusalem, I pray that you would uh, bring justice, and wisdom, and that you would uh, help especially the believers in that region like Ayelet, to be a great light and a witness for the Messiah, Jesus, who has come and is coming again. And so, Lord, I, I pray that uh, people would see him as the Prince of Peace and that peace would reign and that you give our nation wisdom in how to, how to come alongside that conflict in the best possible way. So, Lord, we're grateful, pray, pray for protection um, and for you to work in good ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, I want to talk this morning about habits of grace. This is a term I stole from a really good book by David Mathis where he talks about what we do to grow. And 
here's how I'm defining habits of grace. These aren't David's definitions, but here's how I want to define habits of grace. What we do to grow are spiritual disciplines, practice with our bodies, mostly in normal life, rooted in the local church. So it's just what we get up in the morning and we devote ourselves to on a daily basis so that we grow. So they're habits, and they're habits of grace, which means they enable us to grow in godliness as a gift of God through the kind ministry of the Holy Spirit. So yes, they are things we do in our bodies practically daily, uh, and, and they're things we do depending on the Spirit of God and the grace of God to do. So that's why they're habits, they're disciplines, and they're based in grace. There's a, there's a tension there, but we got to get that tension right. Um, and the goal of our growth. Here's the goal. I, I, I never want to do anything without a clear goal. Where am I heading? Why am I doing this? I don't want to just do things to do things ever. I want to know where I'm heading. And where we're heading with these habits of grace is essential to understanding them rightly. There's actually a danger in what we're talking about this morning when we talk about discipline and habits because there, there is a tendency we have to hate grace. I realized that about myself a while ago, that there's something in me that hates grace. And I remember I was riding my a bicycle with, with my neighbor, who I just love. And this guy, I just love him. He's, he's a, a, an amazing neighbor. You can't imagine a better neighbor than, than this guy. And we're riding bicycles one day. He's not a believer in Jesus, but he actually loves Christians. He's not a Christian, but he loves us. He, he'll come over and he'll say, Eric, man, this world's going crazy. I am so thankful for you Christians. You're keeping everything together insane around here. You're the fabric of this place. Keep up the good work, man. And he just, he does. And, and he's, a, he's, a really, he's a really successful businessman as well. And he, he, he's in sales. And he'll come over and he'll say, Eric, I know you work with those kids over at Biola University, those Christian kids. He said, I was thinking about what you do. And I came up with a great angle you could use to get them to buy in more to the Christian thing. Try this on him. And he has all these sales techniques he wants me to use as a professor at Biola. It's just amazing. But I love the guy. And, and he said, you know, I say, we, we would fall apart if we weren't a few Christians. Way to go, man. And so, so we were riding bikes one day, and I was, I was telling him about Jesus. I was telling him about the good news of how he could have a relationship with God by repentance and faith in Jesus and his finished work. And I said to him, you know what, Glenn, I think you have some real challenges in your life to understand grace. And I said, the first thing is you're a man. And, and men are wired to prove themselves. Men are wired to earn it, to, to get after it, to go do it. And so men, and in particular, can have a really hard time with grace, just receiving what you don't deserve and what you didn't earn and what you're not worthy of. We have a hard time with that. We want to we wanna deserve it. We want to earn it. We want to prove it. And I said, the second thing is you're, you're, a, you're a businessman. I mean, you're in sales every day. You're proven your worth. You're making your, your commission every day. And so your whole mentality is oriented around that. And I said, plus, you're an American. And Americans are really competitive, right? We, we, we just compete naturally. And I said, and I, I just think those 
things are going to make, oh, oh, and then I said this. I said, and you're an athlete. He still holds the record. He's older than I am, but he still holds the record for the half mile and the mile at his high school and the university where he ran track. And I said, plus you're an athlete. And that's just another layer of what you get out of it is what you put into it, right? And, and there, there could be great things about that. I've actually written stuff and published stuff on a Christian view of sports and a Christian view of play and competition. I think there's a really healthy place for that in our lives. But when it comes to the grace of God, those things can make it really hard for us to say, Lord, I surrender. I bring nothing to you but my sin. I bring nothing to you but my unworthiness. And if we can't get to that place where we understand grace is completely unmerited favor. It's God's kindness toward us when we only deserve judgment. He's kind to us anyway. And so grace is a tough thing. And there's something in me, I realize, that hates grace, that wars against it. Because deep down, I want to earn it, prove it, demonstrate it, and be worthy of it. And I, gotta, I just got to get to the end of myself if I'm going to get to the feet of Jesus. And, and so sometimes it takes circumstances in life to humble you, which I had a lot of loaded in early on in my life, that, that got me to the point where I said, I, I can't earn it and prove anything before God, a holy God. If we really understand the holiness of God, there is no way we would start to strategize how we can solve our sin problem ourselves. Right? If we really knew the holiness of God and the corresponding realization of our sinfulness, there's no way we're going to say, I'm going to strategize to be more moral and a better guy and just a, a stand-up Boy Scout, and God's going to love me. That's not how it works. And so we've got to, got to understand grace if we're ever going to do this. And the goal is intimacy with God and enjoyment of Him. Now, the byproducts of those things are going to be transformed character. We're going to become more like Jesus. We're going to have deeper integrity. And, but it's got to start with a pursuit of God. It's profoundly relational, not first and foremost moral or ethical or even character formation. It's relational. Our whole lives need to be driven for the main purpose of our existence, and that's relationship with God. That's the truth. That's what you were made for, God himself. You were made for a relationship with God. Now that, that works itself out in all your relationships and all the ministries we get to be part of and do, all, all the things we get to do as men and as, as husbands and fathers and friends and sons and, and, and employees or employers or neighbors. All the roles and relationships we end up having are grounded in our relationships with God. That, that's what we're for. That's why God made us for himself. And so we can't lose sight of the main goal of everything we do. The main goal is to know God. You know, Jeremiah 9 says, that don't, don't let the wise man boast of his wisdom or the mighty man boast of his might or the rich man boast of his riches. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, God says. So knowing God is why we exist. And the rest, relatively speaking, is detail. It is. As important as it is, it's details. It's working out that fundamental reason for our existence, relationship with God. So as we practice habits of grace, intimacy with God, enjoyment of God, which, yes, bears fruit and glorifies him, and it's the working out of the gospel. The Bible says work out your faith with fear and trembling. It doesn't say work for your faith with fear and trembling. Huge difference, right? Right? 
We don't work for our salvation, but we work it out. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We don't work for it. And so as we're working that out, we see Christ at work in our lives. Two passages that really get after the goal of this. 1 Peter 3.18. Christ also suffered once for sins. He never had to do it again. He paid the penalty in full. The righteous for the unrighteous. I love that because that talks about paying the penalty for our sins, but also obeying in place of our disobedience. Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you. He lived every day obeying the Father every step of the way in place of all my disobedience and yours. Every time I've disobeyed, Jesus obeyed in my place. And that's good news. So he lived for me as well as died for me. And this First Peter passage really gets at that. He suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's me. That's you. Why? What's the goal of that? Yes, I'm declared righteous in Christ. Yes, I'm forgiven of my sins in him. But the goal of putting me in that position is so that I might be brought to God, right? There, there it is, that relational core, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Next slide, guys. So intimacy and enjoyment with God Bears fruit and glorifies him, and that's the working out of the gospel. Here's another great passage for this. We were buried with him by baptism, identification with Jesus in his death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we baptize people at our church, and very often the dads will baptize their kids they, they put them in the water and they say, have you trusted Christ and Christ alone for forgiveness of sins? And the person says, yes, I have. And then we say, then based on your profession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we say, buried with him in baptism. And the whole congregation at once says, in raised to walk in newness of life. And then we lose it and just applaud like crazy. It's awesome because that's the imagery. We died with Christ by faith with him and union in him. And we're raised with him. And we're raised not just to be forgiven and righteous, but to now work that out, walking in newness of life. And so that's a daily thing we work out. Next slide. And so these habits of grace is what we're after. All right, let's just go, go through them, guys, if we could. The first one is the word. we got to be men of the word. We've got to be men devoted to the scriptures. We can't go by looking inside ourselves or just going on our gut or intuition or what comes naturally or even what we may have been taught in our family or maybe even our church. We've got to be like those faithful Bereans who hear Paul preach and then they go to the scriptures and they figure out what he said and whether or not it matches the scriptures. We've got to be men of the word. We've got to be devoted to the scriptures. We, we got to get up in the morning, and we got to make it a priority to get in the Word. I have a dear friend who prays for me incredibly faithfully. And Aaron, Aaron is such a gift to me. And he's praying, I'm sure, right now. He, he prays for me and lots of other people, too. I'm not the only one, but so faithfully prays. And I, I told him uh, what, what my, my burdens were and what my prayers were for this, this time this weekend. And he sent this to me yesterday. He said, um, he said, tell the men to let nothing stop them by the mighty grace of God from spending earnest, meaningful time with the Lord in the word and prayer each day. 
no matter what. This is more vital in the full and life-giving sense of the word than breathing. There's nothing I've done in my life, save conversion itself, that has been as life-transforming and important. When I'm looking upon the Lord, I'm not looking upon myself. I'm not looking at the wind and the waves. I'm not looking for my idols. All those things fall away before the glory of God in the face of Christ. There's nothing my evil heart desires that holds a candle to him. There can be no good desires he places in me that I will pursue better without praying to him. When he does grant desires like relationships and achievements and responsibilities and so forth, as a husband, a father, a professional, or whatever, that time in the word and prayer becomes all the more essential. Just think of David with Bathsheba or later counting the fighting men. Untold numbers suffered for his choices far more than when he was a ruddy boy caring for sheep. If we as men indeed want our dreams to be fulfilled, to be grown by God into mighty giants upon the earth, for our actions to matter on the highest metric for all of eternity, then we have to get this right. Down on our knees we must fall. To the direction of the word we must submit, calling earnestly on the Lord to give us the indispensable bedrock foundation of daily quality time with him. And he will, he will make us trees planted by streams of water that yield his fruit in season. He will cause us to look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Not forgetting what we've heard, but doing it. He will make us branches rooted in the vine, without whom we can do nothing, drinking from the wellspring of living water that never runs dry. He is the God who has chosen us, and he will do it. Ah, what a blessing to have friends like Aaron. But is that beautiful? That, that's what he's praying for you guys. And, and that I am, and that we all need. We need time in the word. We need time with the Lord. We don't neglect him. God hates being an unspoken assumption. He hates being sort of this fixture that we don't get to give attention to. Have you ever uh, said, man, I, I want to remember this person and pray for him, and you put their photograph up, or you put a scripture up on your bulletin board, and then you never look at it? You've had that experience? I do that all the time. I put some up so I, I remember it, and then I ignore it. And God can be like that. We can take him for granted. He can be this, this unspoken assumption. Okay, the next thing, number two, is prayer. Yeah, that's what Aaron was talking about. Word and prayer have got to drive us in these things. We've got to be prayerful men. Now, every one of these things we're talking about that we need to devote ourselves to has a focused, set-apart aspect to it, but then an ongoing, throughout-the-day aspect to it as well. So take the word. We need to sit down and read our Bibles. We need to sit down and meditate on Scripture. We need to memorize Scripture. We need to be Bible-saturated. But then, throughout our days, we need to be thinking about the word. And it needs to be finding itself in our conversations. When we're counseling someone or thinking through a hard issue, we bring Scripture to mind. And so it's got a dailiness to it as well as a set-apart aspect to it. So does prayer. I, we need to have set, a time, set apart times of prayer where we pray. And we also need to be, as Paul says, in constant prayer, prayerful, conscious of him throughout the day. Communing with him. And all prayers is talking to God, communing with God. And it, it grieves me that so many people think to be a Christian, especially non-Christians and new Christians, think you need to have impressive King James-sounding prayers. Right? But you know what kind of prayer God loves? A prayer like, ah! 
And you know what God tells us in Romans 8? The Spirit hears us do that and says, got it. And he translates that before the throne according to the will of God. What a gift the comforter is, right? God loves this prayer. Help! I have a friend whose life, he had gotten to the end of himself, and he was walking across the room to, to kill himself with a, with a full bottle of pills, painkillers. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he fell on his face, and he just started crying out, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, I'm sorry. You think God doesn't love that prayer? There wasn't one thee or thou in that prayer. But God loved it. And, and so, so we need to talk to God. We need to include him in our life. I have a mentor, Robert Coleman. I don't know if I've ever met anybody who is so heavenly minded and, and, and fixed on Christ. Coleman doesn't even feel the need to say things like, let's pray. He just starts praying. Because he knows he's always in the presence of God. He doesn't feel the need to say, you know, let's, let's sing. Let's worship God. He just starts in. And, you know, it, you got to get used to it. Because you'll be in a car with him. And, and he starts saying very lofty things about you. And then you realize, oh, he's talking to God right now. <laughs> right? It's, it's good to make the switch, right? It's good to make the switch. And, and so, so we need to ha have that more of that seamless awareness of God's presence. Where prayer is something that we just very naturally go into. And so, number three is worship. Worship. We, we, we have to cultivate hearts of worship, which, is, which means taking what we know about God in our minds and having that get into our affections, our heart. And, and men have a hard time with this. I, I got to tell you guys, it grieves me how often I will see a man standing there, sometimes with his teenage boys... In the, in the midst of corporate worship, with hands in his pockets, looking like he's watching paint dry. What are you teaching your son when you're standing there looking bored as anything? We're going before the very presence of God, in the throne room of God. We get to worship him. All we should ever hear from God is depart from me. But because of the grace of God, we hear from him, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's reason for joy. And we get all caught up in the style. It's not the style I like. Or I don't care. If I get to go into God's presence because my sins are forgiven because of Jesus, I don't care if it's in Swahili. I don't care if it's Calypso. I don't care what the style is. I get to sing praises to God. I mean, how crazy, how crazy that even the term worship wars exists. And it tears the church, and churches have services for the old people and services for the young people based on style of music. And I'm sorry if your church does that, but I just think that's a bad idea. Because you know what happens? The old people just get crankier and crankier and crankier, and the young people just keep pooling their ignorance over here without any of the wisdom of the old people. Look, if we can't agree, what we're, if we can't agree enough to sing together... How can we show the world the unity Jesus prayed for that we would have? Amen. And I got to tell you, I wish every young person, every young man especially, could be here this weekend and hear you guys praising God together. It's a beautiful thing to see because stereotypically men aren't good at getting their infections engaged. We're not. We think you got to be cool and a stone and a rock. No. If you've been saved by God, you'll weep in worship. You'll thank God. You'll sing loud. You'll shout praises. We need to be more, way more excited about Jesus than the Rams. We need to be way more excited about Jesus than the 49ers. 
right? <laughs> That's hilarious. Anyway, um, we need to have relative loves and passions based on what's worthy of our passions. It is amazing, my guys, that can't get themselves to sing in corporate worship, but they'll lose their minds and paint their bare chests for a football game, right, and sit out in the cold, right? It's just incredible how we have disordered passions in some ways. I don't want anybody to think I love a sports team or even my wife more than Jesus. As much as I love her, he's the lover of my soul. He's the one who gave, me for her, gave her to me. And she doesn't want me to love her more than Jesus. She knows that he's the one who owns my life. And so, so we, we need to worship God. And let me encourage you. Read your Bible and pray. But before you leave that time, sing. All by yourself. I don't care if you have a bad voice. I don't I care if you can't carry a tune in a bucket. I, I, my, I have a daughter, and she may be the worst singer I've ever met. She's so bad. She's one of those, you know how you sing next to people sometimes who know how to sing, and they make you sound better? She takes you right down the hole with her, right? If she's anywhere near you, it's like, ah, oh, her flatness just brings you right in the hole. And, and I'm an honest dad. I committed to being an honest dad. So when she says, Daddy, do I have a nice voice? I say, no, honey, you don't have a nice voice. No. No, you're an amazing athlete. You have incredible sense of humor and way to relate to people. But, honey, voice is not one of the gifts God gave you. I don't lie. We got to stop lying to our kids. We really do. We really do. Uh, so, so, but she sings. I, I love hearing her sing. I think her singing when she's worshiping God from a devoted heart sounds beautiful to God. Even it sounds terrible to us. It, it sounds beautiful to her. And so we need, to, we need to have times where we sing to God. Express your affections. Unless your heart's engaged, it's incomplete understanding. And then dive in corporately. Guys, I've been so encouraged by, by this group of men in the way you are worshiping God. He deserves that. And he agrees with us when we say he does. And so, so let's, let's show the world that we love Jesus more than everything. I have a friend who was raised in a hockey family. I'm from Connecticut. I grew up in Connecticut. And New England has a ton. The Northeast has a ton of hockey families. And they're, like my friend, he had, he had eight kids in the family, five boys, and they all played hockey. And they all wear flannel shirts, untied Timberland boots, jeans, hats on backwards with mullets. That's, that's how they dress. And they're missing teeth. And the mom's been getting up at 4 in the morning, bringing them to the rink. I mean, hockey families are this, this kind of family where I grew up. And those boys are tough, tough people. And none of them were Christians in my friend Jeff's family until his, his big brother Bob became a Christian. And he became a Christian because he was driving drunk with a bunch of kids in the car and had an accident and two of them died. That'll wake you up. And it did wake Bob up. And, and he ended up trusting Jesus and having his life totally transformed by Christ. And he received the forgiveness of God he knew he desperately needed. And not long after that, Bob invited my friend Jeff, who was, a, was an amazing hockey player. He invited him to church. And he stood next to his brother Jeff. And Jeff is standing there, pour, and Bob is standing there pouring his heart out to God with all this emotion. And Jeff is going. What happened to my big brother? What is going on here? 
He had never seen anything like that in this tough hockey player. But see, that's what God does to you. He, he changes you. He gives you a love for him that is willing to make yourself vulnerable in front of other people and show your love for him with an affectionate heart. And, and so, so we can't be embarrassed by that, guys. we got to get after it. And so next one, number four, giving. The Bible talks about money all the time. The Bible talks about the, the danger of money, the evil of money. And what giving makes us do is pry our hands off the idol of our wealth, of our resources, and give them the kingdom work because we want to invest in eternity, just not here and now. So we're storing up our treasures in heaven, and one of the main indicators of that is a freed-up heart that so trusts God to take care of you that you won't trust the pseudo-security and influence and power you get from money, so you give it away. You give it away liberally and generously. There aren't rigid rules about this in the Bible, but a heart that's been set free by Jesus gives generously of our money. You know, I think guys in our day are more willing to talk about a problem they have with pornography than they're giving. It's amazing to me. You know, I think, I think one of the reasons is the Bible says don't boast about what you give, you know, given, given secrets, so you're not getting credit for that. But that doesn't mean don't help people understand what generosity looks like. My friend Dave Talley is incredibly generous. And so Dave and I will have conversations about our giving, and I'll say, Dave, tell me about your giving these days. And I'll think, oh, I thought I was being pretty generous. Dave's kind of raising the bar right now, and that's good for me. To, to hear generous people. So what we do with our money has a whole lot to do with where our hearts are. Because where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what Jesus says. So giving. Number, number five. Number five. Serving. Again, I, I think we should all serve. I remember we, we started going to a church when we lived in Wheaton. And this woman came up to us, Jane Hawthorne. She's actually the, the sister of, of Amazing missionary Jim Elliott, who was martyred on the mission field. But Jane came up to us after our like third or fourth week at this church, and she said to my wife and me, "So what? Um, it looks like you'll be settling here at Bethany." And we said, "Yeah, this is going to be our church." And she said, "Oh, wonderful! So what would you like to do?" <laughs> she said, "Because everyone should do at least one thing in the church, don't you think?" And we're like, "Yes, Jane. Yes." <laughs> She's like Yoda. She was like the mind was control, and and so. And she had a job for us, just handing out these visitors' packs when people came in. She gave them to my wife. She had a job for us. Unless you start serving in a specific ministry way, I don't think you'll ever have the kind of ownership or the kind of depth of relationship God calls us to. And again, this has, I think, it should have a formal aspect that this is how I'm serving in a formal way, but an informal one, too, where you're always thinking about how you can be helpful, how you can be unselfishly benefiting other people. Because we want to live out the kind of generosity that Jesus gave us. All right, four more. Next one, number six, proclamation. I come from a town near New Haven, Connecticut. And Worcester Street in New Haven, Connecticut is Little Italy. And we have the very best pizza in the world. In the world in Worcester Street. You don't believe me, Google it later, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Just the picture of a pizza from Sally's or Pepe's will make your mouth water. And I could give you all the reasons why it's so good. The, the, the ovens that are illegal to make now because they're so hot and they're coal-fired, and that the, the um, Zapardi family gets up 
at four in the morning and starts cutting fresh vegetables and garlic and, and making the sauce and making the crust from scratch and doing all the things you do to have the best pizza in the world. My mouth is literally watering right now. It really is. I'm serious. The best pizza in the world. Now, I've been eating pizza from Worcester Street my whole life since I was a little kid. And every time I talk about it like I just was, I appreciate it more. So when it comes to Jesus, when we speak well of Christ, when we try to help other people understand who he is, we appreciate him more. So we think of proclamation as something we're all told to do, to preach Christ, to help people know who Jesus is, to be gospel ministers in that way. It's not only important for the people to whom you preach, it's important for your own soul. Because if you're not speaking about Jesus in a way that's helping other people appreciate him, you won't appreciate him like you need to. You know what Paul says to Philemon in Philemon verse 6? I pray you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you, Philemon, will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Isn't that amazing? That, that, that preaching Christ deepens your appreciation for him. Number seven, fellowship. We got to be devoted to relationships, guys. We've got to be devoted to relationships with people who will disappoint you and, and hurt you and fail you because you'll be doing all those things to other people too. We need to be men devoted to relationships and long haul commitment. And somebody said the other night, what we need commitment. We need to be men of commitment and, and committed to relationships is what we need to be desperately. I, I had coffee with a guy. Um, Ajit Fernando, I told you about him the other day. Oh, yeah, yeah. What did I tell you about him? Did I, didn't I talk about Ajit Fernando from Sri Lanka the other night? I did, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I said, how do you develop a theology of church, church groaning? How do, you learn, how do you help people learn to suffer? And he said, oh, that's easy. Just stay committed to people. And you'll, you'll struggle, you'll suffer, and they will too. And that's how we grow. That's how we're refined. We've got to stay committed to relationships for the long haul. Two more. Eight, suffering. Now, what do I mean by this? It means when we suffer, we lean into it. We don't just do everything we can to avoid it. It's fine to want to pray that suffering will stop. But when suffering comes our way, we can become like the man of sorrows. As we move into that suffering, saying, Lord, what do you have for me in this? And second, I think we should suffer voluntarily. What do I mean by that? We should make our lives harder than they otherwise would be because of decisions we make, like getting involved in difficult situations in the lives of other people, right? So we, Christians are crazy people who choose to suffer. And it's easy to say, man, I got enough suffering on my own. I can't help you with yours. But Christians are people who say, no, I so trust God to help me with mine that I'm going to help you with yours. And I'm going to bear one another's burdens. And I'm going to weep with those who weep. And I'm going to take in a foster kid who's going to kick holes in my wall, steal a laptop, and drop the F-bomb at Sunday school. <laughs> Speaking from experience here. Speaking from experience here. Uh, and, and Christians are people who are willing to make their lives harder than they otherwise would be because we so trust God to take care of us. So we lean into suffering we don't choose, and we actually choose a kind of suffering because we so trust God to help us be like him in caring for other people. Last one, missions. What do I mean by that? I mean, we got to care about the nations. We can't just care about my little life. Every morning I wake up and I get an email from the Joshua Project telling me about another unreached people group that's never heard the name of Jesus, and I pray for them. 
This morning it was a, it was a, a people group in Afghanistan that I prayed for that, that don't have a gospel witness. You know what that does for me? It makes my world way bigger than it otherwise would be. My world can just be my little list of things to do today. But when I wake up and I think about a people group who've never heard about Jesus, when I think about God's heart for the nations, everything gets bigger and better and in perspective for me. And so those are the things. All right, guys, those are nine things. If you commit to those things, you'll grow. There are a few points I want to make about them. They all work interdependently. We pray according to the scriptures. We pray worshipfully. We go to the scriptures worshipfully. All these things work interdependently. And all these things depend on the Holy Spirit to accomplish what they're intended to. All these things are mostly worked out in the mundane traffic of daily life. And all these things have to be worked out ideally in the context of the local church. It happens in other places like Hume Lake, which is why I'm committed to coming to places like this. But it's got to be anchored in the local church where ministry is going on for the long haul. And in the, in the collective realities of the local church. Hume is a very narrow kind of ministry. It's a, it, it's a, it's a specific ministry. But the local church is the, the primary institution God's using to advance the world. That's why a ministry like Hume says, we're just partnering with the local church. And so dive into your local church, long haul. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that you've given us habits of grace, means of grace. And I pray for each of us that we would have the discipline we need to be the men you've created us to be, to grow, to believe that when we're not seeing results and we don't know how this is adding up to something of lasting value, that you'd help us to stay at it and understand that the grind is often mostly what the Christian life looks like. And it's, it's punctuated with beautiful, miraculous displays of your work. But we become who you've made us to be, the way Jesus became through obedience and the things he suffered for 33 years to fulfill everything we needed him to do for us. So, Lord, I pray for all of us that we would become men of the word and prayer and worship and fellowship and service and giving and missions and proclamation and suffering to the glory of God. So, Lord, help us in these things. Help us to grow over the long haul so we can finish well. And we pray this in Jesus' name.